Let's pray. Thank you, O God, for your holy word. Thank you for allowing us to have it in our language, to be able to read it, to be able to read it without persecution, without fear. God, forgive us when we give up because our flesh is weak and we grow tired and bored with your word. Forgive us that we give up when it's difficult. Would you grant us grace this morning that we would apply ourselves to knowing you and that in knowing you, we might become more and more like you. So help us in your word. Do far more with this sermon than I can in Jesus' name. Amen. When you step back and you consider everything that you're walking through right now in your life, how do you feel? Think about the things that you're juggling. Are you encouraged? Are you needy? Over the years, both in my own personal experience as well as in walking alongside others, it's a common experience to reach a point where you simply don't know how you're going to make it over the next few days or weeks or even months. And in those moments, our hearts are, begin, uh, our hearts are prone to begin grasping for anything that would provide a level of stability, a level of security. A level of hope. Much like a person that's drowning at sea, frantically grabbing hold of any and everything for support, we begin to search out that which we feel like we need most. I wonder if you're familiar. Perhaps you're even there today. I wonder what you would say that your greatest need is this morning. In fact, I would even encourage you to write that down. What is your greatest need this morning? And that may be an interesting topic and conversation to have over lunch or this afternoon to talk about your answers to that question, but also maybe even how the sermon intersects with your needs at this moment. And what I don't want to do is oversimplify complex problems what I don't want to do is oversimplify heartbreaking hardships. But what I do want to do is tell you what I'm convinced the Word of God says you need this morning. You need God. You need God. You need the same thing that Pharaoh and Moses needed. You, needed, uh, you need the same thing that the Egyptians and the Israelites needed. You needed, or you need what all nations needed. The need to know God. And that question is raised a few times throughout the book of Exodus. Who is the Lord? We see it in Exodus chapter 5 verse 2. The first time that Moses goes to Pharaoh to say, let God's people go. And Pharaoh responds by saying, who is the Lord that I should, should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Who is the Lord? That's our greatest need, to know the Lord. To know him deeply, to know him truly, to not allow circumstances to dictate how well we know him or what we know about him. We need to know him. And faithful preaching should include application. But application for us is best derived after we first have knowledge of who he is. We have a tendency to open any piece of literature, particularly the Bible, and our first inclination is to think, well, what about me? Where am I at? And I believe faithful preaching first answers the question, what about God? And where is he at? 
who is God? And then flowing from that, we begin to understand who we are and what we need. And the answer to those questions, who is God and what about God, is what we need most. We need to know the Godness of God. We need to see him for who he is. We need to hear from him. We need to understand him. We need to behold him. And when sermons lead us to praise and love and treasure God more, rest assured, that's a very helpful application. The book of Exodus and the plague specifically really is this call for us to know this one true and living God who is unrivaled in his power. And in knowing this God, that we, much like God's people then, would be able to worship him rightly. That's why the plagues happened. That's why these plagues were recorded. There's more than just the purpose of getting an, an enslaved people out of Egypt. While that was a part of what the plagues were doing, there is this greater part of what the plagues were doing. They were to be set free in a way that would make known to all the nations who this God is. Who is God? God is zealous and jealous to be worshipped. And over the last two weeks, we've traced how that desire to be known and to be worshipped has led God to perform signs and wonders uh, that we would call plagues. He brings judgment to the wicked. He brings mercy to the undeserving. And this morning, we've arrived at the last set of those three plagues. We said that they were the plagues were divided into three sets of threes. The first in each set are, have similarities. The second in each set have similarities. The third in each set has similarities. All of this leading us up to this finale of the 10th plague that we will see in a couple of weeks. And so I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9 beginning in verse 13. And it will serve you to have your Bibles open this morning because we're going to cover a lot of ground. And the clear aim of our time together is to help us know and worship this unrivaled one, the one true living God. And we can know this one by turning our back on this world and trusting in him alone. We've said this for the last few weeks. Because of his grace, you can know God in his mercy. And if you choose not to turn from your sin and trust him alone, you will know God in his judgment. And so let's unpack God's judgments in these last plagues and discover his mercy along the way. We said last week that the first three plagues, the the summary could have been The plagues are showing that the most powerful forces that Pharaoh can call to his aid are no power for this God. Last week, we said that the second set of three plagues were really uh, different in that they make a distinction between the Egyptians who were afflicted and the Israelites who were spared. In our three plagues today, we will see... God's unlimited and unmatched authority over all of creation. And so, let's think through these three plagues, and we begin with plague number seven, the deadly hail upon all of Egypt. Deadly hail upon all of Egypt. This is the passage that we heard read this morning. And and we we recall the similarities of this plague with the first and the fourth plagues. The Lord calls Moses to go and confront, confront Pharaoh early in the morning, calls for Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they may serve God, threatens another sign and wonder that would bring affliction upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And of all the plagues, this plague is the most detailed. And it begins with an extended section of God informing Moses and Pharaoh and us of the purposes behind these plagues. These plagues are meant to be a supernatural demonstration of God's unrivaled power. Look again at verse 14. 
For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people. Why? Why would you send plagues on the Egyptians? So that you, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Each plague has demonstrated this. And now these last few are the most severe and the most intense. And it will leave no question to the minds of everyone who experiences this judgment and everyone who sees it and hears about it, that this is the God who is unrivaled in his power. In verse 14, the the Hebrew reads literally, I will send all my plagues on your heart. Moses is laboring to ensure that we don't miss the personal nature of these plagues. This heart, which has been heavy and hardened, will now bear the heavy and hard judgment of this plague. Verse 15 highlights his unrivaled power. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you, you and your people, with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. The Lord says, I could have wiped you out already. But I chose not to. Why? Why not just in one fell swoop do away with these ungodly people who are worshiping false gods? Well, verse 16 tells us. Why did he not do that? For this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Verse 16 reminds us of the missionary heart of God. He desires to be known in all the earth. And the beautiful thing about these plagues is that they succeeded in their purpose. When the Gibeonites go out to meet Joshua, in Joshua chapter 9, verse 9, The Gibeonites spoke of the fame of the Lord, saying, We have heard the reports of him and all that he did in Egypt, that all the nations might know his name. Many years later, when the Ark of the Covenant entered the Philistine camp, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, the the, the Philistines said, We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. And so while they didn't understand that there was one God singular, they did know that the God who belonged to that people did crazy, miraculous wonders to the Egyptians. Paul would even look at this moment in Romans chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, and he would summarize God's sovereign grace. And you and I, we are here declaring the truth of the Lord that his name might be known in all the earth. And so the the extended section gives us a behind-the-scenes look as to why the Lord has been so patient to continue to tarry with Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then we reach news about the plague. And this plague will be a devastating hailstorm, unlike anything that's ever been known. In the midst of this plague that God is, uh, that he, that is carrying out God's judgment upon sin, we also see evidence of his mercy. We see evidence of his mercy most clearly uh, spelled out in verse 19. Now therefore send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. And so God's mercy in the midst of his judgment, God provides mercy for any who will fear the Lord, who will trust the Lord. This wasn't the first time that God had given a warning, but it was the first time that the Egyptians were invited in to be spared from this affliction. 
And those who feared the Lord would be spared, while those who paid no attention to the word of the Lord would die in his judgment. I wonder this morning, do you fear the Lord? Do you trust his word? Are you taking him at his word? Do you believe his word? Do you obey his word? That's what it means to fear the Lord, to hear his word, to believe it, and to obey it. Verses 23 and 24 tell us that as the hail came, it was unprecedented. It was unprecedented. Literally, balls of fire, rolling bolts of lightning flashes everywhere. It was meant to evoke a terror. No one would want to fall into the hands of this God who is this mighty and whose power is unrivaled. Verse 25 goes on to say it wasn't just death on those that were left out. It was destruction to all of creation. The land was utterly ruined after this storm. The only crops that were left were little seedlings of wheat. The crops were beaten to the ground. The trees were stripped and smashed and blown apart. There was loss of life. Up until now, we've seen a lot of discomfort. Now we begin to see the intensity and the severity of the plagues as now there's death. This would have been seen as an, as an attack on many of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. An agricultural people, they had gods for everything. And the hailstorm brought it all to an end. The Bible uses the same word to describe the nature of the storm, the severity of it, as it does the nature of Pharaoh's heart. The storm was as every bit as bad as Pharaoh's heart was. And yet in mercy, Israel, God's people are spared again. Those who belong to God will be spared his judgment. And those who remain at odds with God will experience his judgment. And then we hit verse 27. And just maybe we've reached the point that we've hoped for for seven long destructive plagues. Finally, there's a confession from Pharaoh. I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one. I and my people are the wicked ones. We're thinking maybe this is it. Maybe after all, Pharaoh's heart has been softened. And yet Moses sees right through Pharaoh because Pharaoh doesn't fear God. He even says as much. Verse 30, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear the Lord God. And we begin to go back and he begin to dissect what it was that that Pharaoh shared here, and you begin to see, wait, Pharaoh says, I have sinned this time. Pharaoh, what about the previous times? By failing to confess other sins, he's in effect minimizing his sins. Owning up and saying, hey, my bad this time is different from recognizing that I am a depraved rebel against this God at the core of who I am. Pharaoh was moved by his circumstances, not true sorrow for his sin. And Paul will pick up on this later when he writes about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I rejoice, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. 
Any confession of sin that's absent of fear of God is a confession that will fall short every time. And so if you're a follower of Christ this morning, I just want to remind you that your fear of God is fundamental to your repentance. In fact, there's a correlation. If you don't fear God, you won't live a life of continual repentance. Moses went out to pray for Pharaoh and God graciously stopped the hail and the thunder, and the lightning. And because his circumstances went back to more comfort, Pharaoh hardened his heart again, went back on his word, sinned even more, and did not let the people go. You see, Pharaoh feared the plagues. And the consequences of the plagues, he didn't fear the God of the plagues. And I wonder what it may be in your life where your fear is misdirected and misguided. The fear of getting caught, not the fear of sinning against God. Do you fear God? What do you hate more, the consequences of your sin or your sin? Remorse is different than repentance. And the best way to tell whether you're remorseful or repentant is to watch what happens after your confession. Pharaoh didn't want a change of heart. He wanted a change of circumstances. And so he continues on in his hardened heart. And that brings us to the eighth plague. The infestation of locusts upon Egypt. We see this in the first 20 verses in chapter 10. And we recall the similarities of the second and the fifth plagues. There's another command to go to Pharaoh. There's not specific time frames like there was with the first plague in each set. There's another call to let the people go or to be afflicted by God's judgment again. And again, like plague number seven, plague number eight gives us a little bit more insight as to the purpose of the plagues. Look at what we read in the beginning, verses one and two. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may perform these signs of mine among them. So his heart is hardened so that the signs will continue, verse 2, but there's another purpose. And you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. These plagues were meant to be stories that were talked about generation after generation after generation not just among the nations, not just among the Egyptians, but among the people of God, so that the children would never forget the mercy and the judgment and the faithfulness and the love of God. They were to be talked about so that future generations might believe on this God. And so the image is just imagine the families Gather around, kids. Let me tell you a story. Oh, Grandma, would you tell us the story again about how God was faithful? Would you remind us again, Dad, of what it was that God did to make clear who He is? And this is just a good reminder for each of us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a responsibility with the good news of what God has done to protect his people in mercy, you have a responsibility to share that with younger generations. That's why when we do a parent, child, and church dedication, it's not just a child dedication. It's not just a parent and child dedication. But there's a responsibility. If you're a covenant member of this church, you have a responsibility 
You've been entrusted with the good news of what Christ has done, and that's not just for you and your friends, though it is for you and your friends. It's for you to rightly steward to younger hearts in future generations. And so children, you should, you should feel free to go up to any member of this church and say, tell me the story of what God has done through Jesus. And church, I pray that we would relish in that opportunity to speak of his work. And so parents... Don't quit telling the story. Come life kids, workers, don't quit telling the story. Friends of those with children, don't quit telling the story. One theologian would put it this way, a church which does not teach her youth can never hope to retain a confession because it cuts off all contact with the past, divorces her from her fathers, and forms a new group. And so if you desire to have a confession, then you must learn and you must teach others. Praise be to God. Church, you're standing on the shoulders of those that shared the stories with you. May you do the same to others. And the plague that God promised to afflict Egypt with here in, in plague number eight, if Pharaoh would not obey and let the people go, would be locust covering the land, blanketing every visible surface and devouring everything that was left, every little thing that was left from the hailstorm. Verse 3, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve you, or they may serve me. That question reminds us of how Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 1 verse 11, he humbled Israel by putting them into slavery. And now the Lord is saying, Pharaoh, how long will you be humbled? By not yielding to me. Phil Riken, commentator, put it this way. Every human being faces the same choice. The Bible teaches us that God opposes the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter chapter 5. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then 1 Peter chapter 5 will make an obvious application. Therefore, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Riken goes on to continue. The practical question is one, uh, for us, is one that God posed to Pharaoh. It's one that I would like to pose to you this morning. How long will we, will you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord? There are other ways that we could put it. How long will you live such a sinful lifestyle? How long will you destroy yourself and the people that you love? How long will you be put how long will you put off the day of judgment? How long will it be? When Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage, he got to this point and he said, "Let's forget Pharaoh. Only think of yourself. Let the Lord Jesus Christ himself with the crown-thorned head or the, the thorn-crowned head and the pierced hand stand by your pew looking right down into your soul and say in his matchless tone, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Perhaps one of the most important questions that you will answer is that one. On this day, how long will you refuse to bow your knee in submission to this God? And it's no wonder that Pharaoh's servants start to question his leadership in verse 7. Pharaoh's servants said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? And I'm not sure if there's a more striking picture in the Bible of what sin does to us than this. 
Maybe you've seen it tragically in your own life or in the life of another, but you can look around and you can see the devastation of sin. You can see the stubbornness, the addiction, the hard-heartedness, and someone, because you're looking at it and yet you seem to be unaffected by it. And someone then says, you've lost everything. It's all ruined. Just give up. Turn to God. Obey God. And yet sin so deceives us, takes us places that we weren't intending to go, keeps us there longer than we wanted to to stay, cost us more than we were ever willing to pay. And you see so often people who have hit rock bottom continue to dig. Thinking that they can get out. Thinking that they are still in control. And that's exactly what sin does. It ruins us and it blinds us. It keeps you persisting in your sin even when you can see all of the devastation that sin has wrought. And so the servants say, just let them go. And so Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron back in. And he says, okay, so tell me technically who all is going to go. And Moses says, exactly who I've been telling you. All of us are going to go. And Pharaoh says, well... How about you leave the women and the children here and the men can go? And yet God has said all along that it would be his people that are set free, not some of his people. And Pharaoh learns in this moment that with God there is no bargaining. It's either all or nothing. If the the Lord has said it, then it's all or nothing. And this devastation of the locust would have been seen again as an attack on men, the patron of crops, or Nepi, the god of grain. And we find that the same east wind that would, in a few chapters, part the Red Sea is called here. And it takes all of the locust and drives them into the sea as Moses prays on behalf of Pharaoh, asking for relief. And once Pharaoh tastes relief, he hardens his heart and he does not let God's people go. And that brings us to the ninth plague. Darkness in Egypt. And we see this in verses 21 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice them to the Lord our God. Therefore our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof should be left behind, for we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You are right. I shall never see your face again. This plague plunged Egypt into a darkness that was overwhelming. I can remember going to Mammoth Cave in eastern Tennessee, and getting so far into a cave 
the little tour guide said, cut off your light. And I cut off my light. And he said, put your hand to your face. And I put my hand to my face and I couldn't see anything. And once I realized that, everything about the darkness got so disorienting. For three days, it was disorienting darkness. And this would have been a clear attack on the most notable God, false God of the Egyptians, the sun God, Amon Ra. Every morning, the rising of the sun, the life-giving power of this false god, Amon Ra, was reaffirmed. And so given the supremacy of this sun god to the people of Egypt, it was inevitable. It was inevitable that the Lord would go toe-to-toe with this one. And God's purpose, we saw this last week, Numbers chapter 33, verse 4. God's purpose in the plagues was to glorify himself while also bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. And so the ninth of a series of ten plagues, darkness. And over the first eight plagues, God has demonstrated his superiority over Happy and over Heket and over Apis. Over the rest of Egypt's lesser gods and goddesses. And I believe this is partly why there were so many plagues. Is God wanted to give his rivals a comprehensive defeat. And this plague of darkness proved God's absolute power over his creation. God can unmake what he has made. This is something that all the plagues are showing. This reversal of creation. The God who made the waters turn the Nile into blood. The God who made green things grow destroyed vegetation with hail and locusts. The God who made creatures swim in the sea and swarm on dry land brought death to those creatures. The God who made men and beasts sent them disease and even death. And finally, the God who brought light out of darkness lets the light fade back into black. One commentator, Peter Enns, put it this way, creation is at God's command both to deliver his people and to destroy his enemies. And the plagues are are creation reversals, animals harm rather than to serve humanity. Light ceases and darkness takes over. Waters become a source of death rather than a source of life. The climax of Genesis 1 is the creation of humans on the last day, whereas the climax of the plagues is is the destruction of humans in the 10th plague. The plagues don't run rampant. They cease eventually. And even when they cease, it's another display of his creative power over all things. We see God's unrivaled power in bringing the plague. We also see his unrivaled power in ceasing and stopping the plague. He once again will restore order to the chaos as he did in the beginning. Each plague is a reminder of the supreme power of God. The darkness, it was physical, but it was also, there was spiritual significance. Darkness in the Bible signifies error and rebellion and death. It's everything that's opposed to God. And this plague symbolizes the spiritual darkness that has spread from Pharaoh's hardened and darkened heart. And his final offer is, okay, I will let you guys go, but leave your animals here. Much like, the way I'm looking at this, much like you go to rent a scooter for the day and you have to leave something so that they know you'll bring the scooter back. Okay, maybe it's not like that, but in my mind I'm thinking, Pharaoh wanted to ensure that the people would come back. He intended to hold their livestock until they would return. He knew that they would not survive long without their animals. And yet again, that's what Pharaoh is always doing, holding something back. By insisting on his right to hold on to God's livestock, he was refusing to give up his sovereignty. Pharaoh wanted to deal with God on his own terms. He wanted to stay in control, so he did only what he absolutely thought he had to do. But a heart that is not willing to go the whole way with God is a heart 
that is enveloped in darkness. We'll talk about the first 10 verses of chapter 11 even in a few weeks. But after all these nine wonders that God has performed, it was necessary for God to send another plague. This one would be the deadliest one of all. And chapter 11 just reminds us of what it is that the Lord has already revealed to Moses. That God is going to bring deliverance. And he's even going to do it in a way where they are to go and to talk to the Egyptians and ask for, for gold and for silver. And that, and that they will, the, the Egyptians will give them that. And then in verses 4 through 8, we see this, this final announcement of what it is that the Lord is going to do. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I am going out in the midst of Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as there never shall be again. He just began to think, wait a minute, there were cries that went up to the Lord earlier in Egypt. And the Lord will bring judgment on those who brought about those cries. And the Lord will show that he hears the cries of his people. And then verses 9 and 10 summarize everything up. And just remind us that the, the Lord says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. and He did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. There are so many things we are meant to learn about God from these miracles. He sent these plagues to demonstrate his justice to demonstrate his jealousy, to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate his mercy, to demonstrate his sovereignty. In a word, we could say God has done all of this to demonstrate his glory, which is the sum of all of his perfections. The history of the plague, it ends with that summary. The Lord performed the wonders while Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so just as we step back from the plagues, I just want to remind us of four very brief, so what? Like what, what am I supposed to walk away from the plagues being convinced of? Well, I believe, number one, we are to be convinced that God is the Lord of all creation. He shows this even through the plagues decreating. And the reality that our God is Lord of all creation should be of great comfort. I mean, he is the maker and the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. And that is meant to give us a strong sense of who God is and for us to live in such a God-centered way before him. And so Christian... Because God is the maker and the supreme ruler of the universe, because that is your God, then I would just commend you, fear not when the temporary government flexes their might because the ruler of heaven and earth is in control. Fear not when you cannot see the future because the one who ordains today has also ordained your tomorrow. Fear not that the Lord who, who created you he will sustain you until he returns or he calls you home. He is the Lord over all creation. There's not one square inch that you can find on this earth where he has not claimed mine. But I think we're also to be convinced that he's also the Lord of every heart. He's not just the Lord of all creation. He's also the Lord of every heart. I mean, Proverbs 21.1 unfolds in, a real, in real time through the plagues. God's displaying his power, not just over creation, but also over the heart of his creation. And Pharaoh's heart condition leads him to be separated from the God that he's denied. 
Before Moses ever went to Egypt, God told Moses in the end that Pharaoh would not let the people go, and he tells us why. Because I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Some 22 references in Exodus of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Some of them God has done it, others of that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so who's to blame? Well, we've talked about this. This is the doctrine of concurrence. The hand of God working through his creation to achieve every one of his purposes and plans. God being sovereign over all. And man making willful, real decisions under that real sovereign will of God. Pharaoh is rightly judged for his sins. What comfort that might bring to you and I today. While Moses was commanded to go and to deliver the truth, what God had said, he wasn't called to change the heart of Pharaoh. That ought to be an encouragement to you and I, even as we're reading in our community groups about the privilege and the responsibility we have to share the gospel with others. We are commissioned to go and we should be comforted that it is Christ who changes the heart. He's the Lord over every heart. I wonder what friend or family member you're praying for or sharing the gospel with. There's comfort here for us. Keep sharing. Keep praying. Keep planting gospel seeds. Keep watering those seeds by your prayers and trusting your efforts to the Lord that's over every heart. But third, he's also the Lord of salvation and judgment. The plague narrative never blushes or apologizes for, for how God acts towards Pharaoh, and neither should we. God judges in perfect righteousness. He acts in just judgment. The Israelites have done nothing special to become God's beloved people. They are God's beloved people because he chose them to be God's, his beloved people. Judgment will fall on the Lord's enemies. And people will be saved by the provision of his grace. His judgment rains down from the plagues. And his people are spared. He's the Lord of salvation and he's the Lord of judgment. And the invitation over the last few weeks has been, if you're not a Christian, you can be shielded from the penalty of your sin through the work of this God. You too, much like the Egyptians and Pharaoh, deserve to sit under the lightning and thunder of God's judgment because of your sin. You deserve that, and that is fair. It's fair for any sinner who sins against God to receive their due and just punishment for that sin. And it's an eternal punishment because it's against an eternal God. And it's a violently intense punishment because he's a perfectly pure God. This is what's fair, that sinners receive that because of their sin. And yet what's unfair is that there are some who, because of the mercy of Christ, will be spared from that judgment. A division is made between what we deserve and what we receive. And that division is made because of both God's good purposes, but also because of the miraculous work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Where the wrath of God would be satisfied once for all as Jesus would, would die a substitutionary death for any who would repent and believe. And he would raise from the dead victoriously, defeating the enemies of hell and death. If you're not a Christian, we would plead with you, trust this message, trust this Savior. Turn from your sin and know, know forgiveness. And then number four, if I can just make an encouragement to Christian brothers and sisters. In light of the judgment that we've seen, stop sinning. I don't even know if I need to explain or expound on that. As we watch the judgment of God being poured out here, it's terrifying. 
None of us want to fall into the hands of a living God who is so holy that he judges sin in this way. And all throughout the Old Testament, you know that the sacrifices that were made were for unintentional sin. There wasn't this category of, if you just continue to remain hard-hearted in your sin, just keep sacrificing, and as long as you sacrifice, you can remain as hard-hearted as you want. No, in fact, it's going to get to the prophets who stand up and who say, the Lord hates that. He hates that your heart is far away, and yet you continue to sacrifice, and because you sacrifice, you think that you're okay. I was reading Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So if we continue to persist, not if we struggle with sin, if we're locked down, doubling down, loaded in our sin, after being convinced that there is a God who has done what he has done in Christ to offer forgiveness. If, If we continue to sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. This whole Hebrews chapter 10 is just this reminder. If you're a Christian, go to God and go to God often and go to God with a clean heart and a conscience, a clean conscience. But if you claim Christ and you deliberately continue in the pattern and the habit of sin, you are resisting the truth that you say that you believe. And the only thing left for you is judgment. Church, we're not to read the plagues and just think, yeah, man, God was really serious about sin back then. He continues to be really serious about sin today. God will not be mocked. He is not fooled. His holiness is not a gullible holiness. The holiness that you are called to, here's the good news. The holiness that you are called to is the holiness that he has provided you. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. What he expects from you, he has provided for you. And so Christian, walk in the light. Let's just anew give up our sin that we so tightly cling to. And God has given his people a remembrance that will serve to remind us both of the price that was demanded as well as the price that was paid. And as we partake of this remembrance meal, it's also a reminder to continue to walk in holiness as he is holy.